Well, amen. It sounds like some of you have cause to sing. Praise the Lord. I want you to turn with me to Romans this morning. We're continuing our studies after a late summer, mid and late summer hiatus. And I want you to turn to chapter 1, because I want to read uh, some of the highlights from chapter 1 up to where we are, really just the thesis statement in the first chapter, and then that, that paragraph in the third chapter, and then six verses from chapter 7, where we'll focus our thoughts, Lord willing, today. So Romans 1, and we'll read from verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then just the opening phrase of the first section of the book, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And now over to chapter 3. We read here the opening statements, the opening paragraph of the second great section of the book. 3 and verse 21. Whereas the first section dealt with the wrath of God being revealed, now we read, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. And now over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh... The motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Well, amen. We'll end our reading. We trust again the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his word. Let's do again. Unite our hearts together and ask the Lord in prayer to help us as we consider His Word today. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice at the singing of gospel hymns. Heir of heaven, Thou hast made me.
bought me with thy precious blood. And Lord, we have read today truly some of the most significant, important, and powerful words that you have ever spoken to men. We pray that their familiarity will not have us look at them lightly. That they won't lose any of the power and the joy that they bring to believers in Jesus. That our faith today might be stirred and that there may be a word in season for us as we would continue on in our pilgrim journeys. So grant us the help of your Spirit as we consider the Word today. We pray it in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Well, as I said, we've had a long summer break from our studies in Romans. So it'll be good for us today to start with a little bit of review. And that, of course, is why I wanted to read those significant sections of Romans that precede the section that we come to today. Romans is clearly a systematic, logical, straightforward statement and presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In its clear thesis, we learn that this gospel reveals the righteousness of God and that it is by faith from first to last. Paul opens then that opening argument, and we just read the opening phrase there of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul opens, I say, by establishing that all men are subjects of God's law, all men are transgressors of God's law, and all men are therefore condemned by God's law. Of course, he at pains uh, explains in chapter 2 that this applies to the Jews who perhaps would have said an amen to the condemnations that were outlined in chapter 1, thinking that they only must have applied to the Gentiles. And of course, he unfolds just as our Savior did in the Sermon on the Mount and so much of his public ministry that Israel, for all her legalistic pursuits of God's law, were still found transgressors and guilty of the same. But in chapter 3, in verse 21, where we read that paragraph, he opens the second section of his book, and we read there, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. And we go through that paragraph, as many have suggested. We, I won't use the word reluctantly, but gave our consent. I kind of held out the importance of chapter 5, you'll remember, to a little bit of chapter 3. But we worked through that. Yes, 3 is the heart of it all. 5 just says, how can it be? But as we read there, we find that this gospel of justification by faith alone, that justification is given freely, it's given without a cause, that it's entirely of grace. And then Paul just hammers out some of those key gospel terms. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A bigger word. The propitiation through faith in His blood. The removal of wrath. We were, I'm always taken back with the connection of our successive Bible readings and our thoughts or our sermon for the day. Ephesians 2, children of wrath even as others. Well, propitiation is the removal of wrath. It's a great gospel word. And then we also read there remission of sins. We read that that gospel, this gospel, excludes boasting. Because the sinner has nothing wherein to boast. All of this is of grace. All of this is of Christ. And then he hammers out afresh that the law isn't made void by this gospel. Do we make void the law through faith? God forbid, he says. That strongest negation he can bring. No, we establish the law with this gospel. We don't make it void. Well, in many ways, the rest of the book of Romans is really the fleshing out of this paragraph statement of the gospel. He is answering questions. 
He is answering objections. And so when we see this statement of the gospel in the closing paragraph of chapter 3, we come then to chapter 4. All right, well, well, what about Abraham? I mean, we could see the Jews highlighting such a question. Well, what does chapter 4 teach us? Abraham is saved the same way. Abraham was saved by faith. When did he come to this right standing with God? After he was circumcised? No, it was, it was before he was circumcised. And so the law, whether you look at it in its moral, civil, or ceremonial functions, had nothing to do with how Abraham was saved. And so we see that classic example in the Scripture. So then we come to chapter 5. Well, how is this possible then? And of course, here's the great chapter of explaining how God can be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. There's this whole truth of federal representation. When did we come into the position of being lost and sinful and under condemnation? In Adam, our first head. How do we come out from under this condemnation? By being placed in Christ, our new head, our new representative. And here we see that great gospel doctrine. Then he comes to chapter 6. Wow! If you understand what we just said, that God accepts and receives you based on what Jesus has done entirely and 0% on what you have done, then you're going to have a question come to mind. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And that question of antinomianism, that charge being brought against us as it was brought against Paul, might be a very good indicator that we're really preaching the gospel. Because it's going to come up. But of course the gospel isn't an antinomian gospel. We don't make void the law through faith. We're establishing the law of God. In chapter 6, deals with that and we looked at those giant terms the verbs working through the chapter of knowing the gospel and then reckoning upon the gospel and then yielding ourselves in service unto God so now in chapter 7 Paul is going to follow on from what he knows will be a further question flowing from a bold statement that he's made in chapter 6 he says in chapter 6 and verse 14 that we're not under the law but under grace And so chapter 7 gives us some of the Scripture's most important teaching about the law and the Christian. Well, in these discussions that flow out of that paragraph, as we've said, we discover that there's a great liberty that belongs to believers in Christ. I have to make a little bit of a confession here. Last spring, I read an eloquent statement in one of my commentaries that I'm going to feebly attempt to share. I wanted to share that quotation today. I've spent two hours in the last three days trying to find it. I have it narrowed down to three commentaries. It's got to be either this guy, this guy, or this guy. I'm pretty sure it's this guy, and I've read and read and skimmed and skimmed, and I can't find it anywhere. So, I cannot read you that eloquent statement today, but I give you some hint in that direction. In chapters 6 and 7 and 8, that are, again, fleshing out normal questions that come when you, when you hear this gospel, there's a freedom, there's a liberty that is expressed that belongs to believers. When you come to chapter 6 and all it's dealing with our relationship to sin... We're free from sin. You come to chapter 7. How does the believer relate to the law? We're freed from the law. And you come to chapter 8. We're freed from death. Everything that attached to us and became ours in the first Adam, sin and condemnation and death, is the very thing that we're released from in the second Adam. And so we have life and justification and liberty. Well, we come today to that second freedom, if you will. 
Chapter 7 speaks to us of being freed from the law. And I want to take that as our theme today, but we'll introduce the seventh chapter before we launch into that in particular. Chapter 7 has, commentators are pretty much united in their agreement, it has three pretty distinct sections. Now, discussion and opinions about what's being said underneath those sections is frankly all over the map, even among really good men. It's on some of the lesser details we should add, not the overriding teaching and truth. But chapter three or chapter seven has rather three sections. Verses one to six, which Lord willing we look at today, form a section. Verses seven to thirteen form another distinct section. And then verses fourteen to the end of the chapter, a third and final section. Now I'm going to give you what I think are the themes of these three sections, and then we'll focus our thoughts today, I say Lord willing, on just the first section, verses 1 to 6. But in verses 1 to 6, what Paul is teaching here is that law, we could say the law, has a lifelong dominion over us. Law has a lifelong dominion, a lifelong claim over us. In the second section, Paul really fleshes out some giant statements, some of the most particular in Scripture, illustrating that the law convicts us of sin. And then thirdly, verses 14 to 25, and here's where some of the bigger questions come. Most notably, the questions are, who's Paul talking about? Is he talking about himself? And if so, is he talking about himself as a believer Or is he talking about himself as an unbeliever? Is he talking about himself, some amazingly suggest, as that state in between being an unbeliever and a believer? You're kind of not quite regenerated, but your eyes are partly open. open. Well, Well, we'll wrestle with that a little bit. But the last section, really, if you work through its key theme, is that the law shows us good but it doesn't enable us to do good. So, again, these three sections. Law has a lifelong dominion over us. Law convicts us of sin. Law shows us good, but can't enable us. Well, today, as I said, I want us to look at this first section and consider the dominion of the law and our freedom from it. Freed. From the law. Our first thought will really be under the statement we've made as to the theme of the opening six verses. Law has a lifelong dominion over us. Paul says in verse 1, Know ye not, brethren. And then there's a parenthesis. For I speak to them that know the law. Now I want to pause here. Make sure, I trust, I hope, for most of you, many of you, what we wrestle with under this heading will be review. But let us be among those who know the law. Now we've outlined before, particularly in that last paragraph of Romans 3, that Paul uses the word law, the New Testament uses the word law in a variety of ways. And sometimes we have to clearly distinguish one usage of the term from another usage. There's other passages where, is it this one or that one, or is it maybe both of them there? It's not always that easy, but yet the general truth of the law is plain. And so when we come to look at the law, and these Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles, notably, he says that no the law. Well, let us wrestle a little bit with our knowledge of the law. Let's finish and read the verse. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. So the law has dominion over us. If I could just interject here and have us pursue our knowledge of the law, What we use when we talk about the truth underneath this statement of Paul 
in our confession of faith, in our doctrinal formulations, we use a phrase, it's a phrase sadly that's been misunderstood, it's been mischaracterized, it's been openly denied in the last century. We use a phrase that we call the covenant of works. It is admittedly an extra scriptural phrase. We don't find that phrase in the Bible, but let us not be afraid of extra scriptural terminology when what we're doing is looking at all the scriptures using what is historically called the analogy of faith. If this is true, and this is true, and this is true, then this is true. And we speak of that in our confession as a good, and here's the big word, and necessary consequence. Well, one of our extra scriptural phrases, the clinical or biggest example that we always bring up is the Trinity. If you ever have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, the first thing they're going to tell you is the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And then the next thing is, is you go to the Bible and show them that the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Bible. So we're not afraid of an extra scriptural phrase if it's a convenient shorthand for communicating truth that is plainly on the pages of Scripture. So when we talk about the covenant of works, we're talking about the original relationship between God and man. We're looking at a covenant God entered into with Adam, our first head, the head of the race. And so when God entered into covenant with Adam, He was entering into covenant with mankind. Well, a dispensationalist is going to come to us and tell us very plainly, well, here's your problem. The word covenant is not found anywhere in or close to Genesis 2. So you're making up something out of whole cloth when you talk about the covenant of works. Depending on your mood depending on the attitude of the dispensationalist that brings you that accusation and that very powerful charge, ask them to turn to 2 Samuel 7. I'm ready to give you a quiz and see if you're awake this far into a long introduction. 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant where God promises David that he'll not lack an heir to sit on his throne forever. And of course, the Davidic covenant is made with Israel's king and points to Israel's Messiah, which is, of course, Christ. So the Davidic covenant, dispensationalists are big on that. The word covenant does not show up in 2 Samuel 7. Ouch. If you go to Psalm 89, if you go to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 23, God speaks of His covenant with David. So the covenant, the Davidic covenant is clearly there, but we don't use the word covenant. So the fact that the word covenant doesn't appear in Genesis 2 doesn't mean that this covenant of works isn't there. Well, then we go to the next thing. What's a covenant? How do you even define it? What are we talking about? A covenant, about to Ask Derek to say it in unison, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. O. Palmer Robertson, the Christ of the covenants. Uh, it finds its way into several courses in the seminary. But a covenant is a bond. It's an agreement. It's a contract. And a covenant is defined by these elements. They're parties. People that are binding themselves together over something. Then you have the conditions or the stipulations of the covenant. All right, what are we agreeing about? And then a covenant has promises. It has positive aspects. If we keep these conditions, then this is what happens. And then it has penalties. If we break these conditions, this is what happens. And then if you add in that, I think, quite fitting part of Palmer's or Robertson's definition. That's a, that's a hard name to say. I've had to say it in seminary twice this week. And O. Palmer Robertson. It just doesn't roll off the tongue easily, at least my tongue. But the middle part of that definition of bond in blood, 
If you look in the scriptures, and we certainly can't take time to work through all this today, but even the terminology, and there's debate over the etymology of the word, but most understand it having to come from a word that has to do with cutting. And there are other verbs that are brought alongside the word for covenant that actually mean to cut, to cut a covenant. And a great illustration of that is God's covenant with Abraham. What does He call Abraham to do? To take a sacrificial animal to slay it, to cut it in pieces, to divide the pieces. And then they would pass through the pieces. And the covenantal ceremony is showing that the parties that are agreeing to this thing and passing between those pieces are saying, do to me what's done to this sacrificial animal if I break this covenant. One of the beauties of that passage in Genesis is God causes a sleep to fall upon Abraham. Abraham doesn't pass between the pieces, but a burning fire and a shining light, two divine emblems, pass between the pieces. Someone else took Abraham's place in that covenant ceremony. All the elements of a covenant are in Genesis 2. If you look at the stipulations of that covenant, it's summarized in one prohibition, really. A special test. God says to Adam, you may freely eat of all the trees of the garden. I've created you, I've created everything that surrounds you, and I have given my own testimony that it is all very good. Adam would have had the law of God. We see it defined throughout Scripture. Love welling up within him. Love to his God. And so, there would have been nothing in Adam to answer to sin. He was in a probationary period. Obviously, he was liable to sin. But in order for this covenant to have teeth, if you will, a prohibition had to be added. You can freely eat of all the trees. The the whole garden is yours. But this one tree, don't eat of it or you die. It wasn't that there was some problem you will, with the tree. Adam wasn't prohibited from eating of the tree of knowledge because it was evil. The tree of knowledge was evil because it was forbidden. It was the mere word of God. Will Adam fulfill the law? Will he love the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? Considering that all of us were in him and he was acting as our representative, would he love his neighbor as himself? I'm tempted to, I don't have it with me, so I can't give into the temptation, but read you from Edward Fisher's Marrow of Modern Divinity. And the question is asked of the evangelist how can we say that this law was? all there wrapped up in that one tree. And he eloquently goes through all of the ten words and shows that in partaking of that one fruit, Adam transgressed all of those ten words. And of course, the New Testament gives us that understanding. He that offends in one point is guilty of all. Our time is hastening on. All the elements of the covenant of works are found in Genesis. We also find a text in Hosea 6 and verse 7. We'll not turn it up. But as the Lord is wrestling through the prophet with his adulterous people, as we have so recently studied in Hosea in our evenings, there's a phrase there the Lord says through the prophet, they like 
man, our authorized version states it, the marginal reading will supply there the better rendering, they like Adam have transgressed the covenant. And so here we would find, as we did with the Davidic covenant, that this arrangement between God and man in the garden was a covenant. And then, also when we come to the New Testament, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, those passages that speak to us of federal headship. Well, federal headship, a whole federal arrangement implies a covenant bond. And so these are just the chapter titles, if you will, of evidence for that, that covenant. But we're thinking through and working through this first thought here today that the law has a lifelong dominion over us. This covenant that promised life, as we'll see in a moment, for obedience, because really, Adam is alive, he's in communion with his God, he has been created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, we learn, after the image of him that created him. And he's threatened with death for one thing, eating of this fruit, taking what God had said not to take. So the penalty is clearly stated, but the promise is clearly implied. If you don't partake of this fruit, if you don't disobey God, live. If you think of the penalty itself and what it threatens, it speaks backwards toward the promise and what is promised and given. And so we find that this law with the threatening of death, I'm just dancing all around in my head, so I may as well go there. This is in the section for next, next week. But look at verse 10 of our chapter. The commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Now you will notice that was ordained is supplied in the authorized version, but it is obviously a very apt and necessary supply in translation. The commandment which was to life, well, it was established for life. There's the promise of the covenant. But this law, this covenant of works, notice the equal sign, if you will, there between the covenant of works, the original requirement of mankind, and the law, the moral law of God. This that promised life has a penalty of death. And I want for us to understand here we're laboring some doctrinal points, but well, this is a doctrinal book. One of the pieces of this covenant theology that we're suggesting is the Bible's system. The dispensational system that has kind of taken over Western evangelicalism the last century and a half fights against this. Now, a lot of people are moving in the last quarter of century, and I'm happy for that. I'd like to see the whole transition really finished, but that's its own thing, and it's with the Lord and the Lord's people. But when we come to see this covenant of works, in dispensationalism, their dispensations start and stop, and then a new one starts and it stops, and a new one starts and it stops. Example, the dispensation of promise to the patriarchs. Well, you read Schofield, when Israel's at Sinai and the Lord gave them his laws and they said, all the Lord has spoken we will do, Schofield says, man, that was stupid. They should not have done that. They should have asked God, petitioned, demanded of God that they stay under the promise and not get under that law thing. And they view that as promise ended then and now law starts as a dispensation and then law thankfully ended and now we're in the church age and you see the point. There's discontinuity all the way through. Well, our system isn't like that. The covenant of works didn't end when Adam sinned. Oh, that covenant's over. Adam sinned. Now we're in a new covenant. The covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is God's answer to our need under the broken covenant of works which hasn't gone 
away. Those that sin, those that transgress God's law, are under condemnation. They're children of wrath. They're marked as transgressors of that abiding law of God. And of course, Israel and any other objector to Paul as he's preaching his gospel of free grace would have questions then. Well, if we're not under the law, but we're under grace, well, we wrestle with that in chapter 6. That's not two different dispensations. It's the believer's relationship to the law of God prior to being united to Christ and after being united to Christ. But the law hasn't gone away. God can't deny His law. He can't say that sin isn't sin anymore. That sin doesn't have penalties anymore. That disobedience doesn't demand punishment anymore. The law is still there. The law has a lifelong dominion over us. So, how is it then that we can be freed from the law? How is it that we who have transgressed and clearly possess no ability any longer to merit life by the promise of this covenant, because we're from birth already transgressors of the covenant? See, the problem isn't with the law. The problem's with us. Well, so our second thought for that today, our second statement is Christ frees us from this dominion. And in verses 2 and 3, Paul brings us a startling illustration. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law, so that she's no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now let us pause here. Paul is not in this passage trying to give exhaustive scriptural treatment of the doctrine of marriage and the doctrine of divorce. He's stating the general truth and principle that the marriage bond is a lifelong bond. And we put it even into the end of our vows, till death do us part. So long as you both shall live. Well, the marriage is a covenant that's binding upon the parties as long as they live. But if one of those parties dies, then that covenant, that marriage bond, doesn't exist anymore because one of the parties is gone. And Paul uses that illustration here. He's not giving a commentary on grounds for divorce. He's not giving scriptural commentary where we find elsewhere with regard to adultery and what we call the exception clause, all of that. He's just stating a general principle. The problems come when we try and take this illustration and put it from the standpoint of a simple illustration into an allegory. And here's a case in point. If we allegorize this, okay, here's Paul's allegory. There's a, there's a husband and a wife. And, well, the husband's going to be the law and the wife is going to be the believer. And so when the husband's dead, the wife is freed and she can marry somebody else. And then we start reading, we, the believers, are dead to the law. Wait a minute, Paul. In your allegory, it was the husband that died and not the wife. And now you're talking like the wife died. So we've got to fix your allegory. Paul's not giving an allegory. He's giving a simple illustration. Death ends a marriage covenant. Well, this law covenant that has dominion, lifelong dominion over us, the only way we can be freed from that is by a death. And Paul's not going to be making the statement that the law is dead because the gospel, and of course this would enrage his Jewish objectors, the gospel does not teach us that believers are freed from the law and its demands and its penalty 
The gospel doesn't teach us that believers are freed from the law through the destruction of the law. Through the law dying and going away. I was tempted at one time to try and really finish this allegory out and all the commentators for all the centuries, they just didn't get it. I, I was going to try and find something in there with the two atoms and all that. It's just not there. It's not an allegory. It's a simple illustration. Death ends a marriage covenant. The law can't go away. The demands of the law resting upon us can't go away. God has to be just, meaning honor that law, honor that original demand that He had of mankind. The gospel is how He can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Chapter 5 has told us about a, a second man, a new representative. And he is, by his blood, paid the demands of that law that can't go away. And he's by his life merited the promise of reward, of eternal life, in fulfilling that law which can't go away. Paul's point here is that in the gospel, the law has lost its claims upon us. We're dead to the law. Really what brings us and what we find fleshed out is that the answer to this covenant of works that can't go away. I mean, seriously, when you meet an unsaved person, what is the first gospel task? Well, it's the task Paul engaged in in the opening argument of the book, chapters 1 and 2, and the first half of 3. Proving that all men are subjects of the law of God, are transgressors of the law of God, and are under condemnation based upon the law of God. Justification is what releases us from that penalty that the law loses its claims upon us without going away. And of course, those demands are met in our new representative. And so while the law has a lifelong dominion over us, the law loses its claims upon us because Christ frees us from this dominion. He's taken responsibility for us under that law. You can phrase it this way in our theological system. The covenant of grace is a covenant of grace for me because Christ fulfilled the covenant of works in my place. That which is a covenant of grace to me in the Gospel was a covenant of works for Christ. So law has a lifelong dominion over us, but Christ frees us from this dominion. Thirdly today, marriage to Christ then produces fruit. We'll just have time to mention the thoughts underneath here. But if you come to verse 4 and following, verses 4, 5, and 6, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Just think of that description of His death under that law for us. That ye should be married to another, even to Him who's raised from the dead. And so you have the death and resurrection of Christ brought together in this statement. And of course, that's the Gospel. Death and resurrection are Christ meeting the demands of the law from both directions. He paid its penalty. He died. He died a death we couldn't die. He died a death of infinite value. But death couldn't hold Him. Because before He ever died, He had already merited life by that same covenant that demanded our death. And so He is risen from the dead. 
God giving testimony by the resurrection of the success and the acceptance of Christ's work and the success of His bringing His people unto Himself. And here, and it's interesting, one commentator commented that other commentators hadn't emphasized it sufficiently, and I said, Amen. Because verse 4 brings us. He doesn't elaborate here. But he can't contain himself as he's working through our relationship to the law that Christ's death under the penalty of our breaches of the law ended in resurrection, which is life. Eternal life. And so marriage to Christ brings us to life. And marriage, what does he say to close out verse 4? We should be married to another, even to him who's raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Commentators are divided and wrestle with, is this fruit in the, in the idea of children, that issue from the marriage? That uh, might be stretching a little bit, just the general teaching of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. What happens to us in the new covenant? What happens to us in the covenant of grace? We're regenerated, we're born from above. We're raised from the dead. You hath He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so this same law that now is finished for us, done away as a covenant of works, as a means of obtaining our own righteousness, which we could never do, as a means of our condemnation, which Christ has paid in our place, that same law that Christ says the Gospel establishes instead of wiping out. It stands as a rule of life. Here, God's definition of right and wrong. God's continuing statement of what is required of us. We can't fulfill it perfectly and merit life by it. But we're obligated happily to follow it and bear fruit and Paul even comments here that when we're in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law, and we'll elaborate on that next time, the law and our fallen condition, again, no problem with the law, the problem's with us. The law stirs up sin in us. You know, you take the bright shiny object and you put it in the middle of the room on the table and you take little Johnny over there. Sorry to all men named John in the audience. And you say, don't touch that. Well, there's 40 other shiny objects in the room, but man, what's going on with that one? They don't want me to... T- I'm going to go... Law stirs up sin in a depraved heart. But he says now, verse 6, we're delivered from the law. That being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And of course, here's one of the hallmarks of Christian liberty. I'm I'm reining, reining, reeling, whatever word I should be saying myself in here. Christian liberty, scripturally, is not the selfish privilege of pursuing every matter of indifference that Christians have questions about and putting it in their face, which is contrary to Paul's clear statements in Corinthians. Now I understand all the complexities and the difficulties and the sins on both sides of the arguments of Christian liberty about lifestyle choices. But the root of the Scripture's doctrine of Christian liberty is freedom from the bondage of obtaining my own righteousness by my own fulfilling of the law. The freedom that I have in the Gospel is that in Christ, with regard to its claims upon me, its condemning force and sentence of death, in Christ, I am freed from the law. And the irony of that is, is when I understand that piece of the Gospel. That my justification doesn't depend on me fulfilling the law. 
It depends on Jesus fulfilling the law for me. The irony of the gospel is once I'm relieved of that burden of the law as a covenant of works, I rejoice in the very same law as a rule of life. As what my God and now my Savior has put before me as the definition of good. And I'm then freed to run in the way of His commandments. I bring forth fruit. What is fruit? It's conformity to God's law. It's love. I'm free to run in the way of His commandments. So in Christ, and in Christ alone, we are freed from the law. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we have read and hastened through some very deep and yet ultimately some very simple truths today. We pray that just as Paul anticipated questions and even objections to his doctrine of free grace, that we might in these supplied discussions about those very questions grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise You today that as believers in Jesus, we have been freed from that law that stood over us and condemned us. And Lord, we pray that if there are any here today that are not yet born again, have not yet embraced Christ in this gospel that is from first to last by faith, that that which we've read today is the gift of God By grace are you saved through faith that you might grant that gift. You might open some lost eye and give a sight of Jesus as He is freely offered as release from the demands of this unchanging law. Prosper your word today. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.